Joshua chapter 2 is where we are this morning. I'm sure some of you have read spy novels before or maybe watched a spy movie. Spy fiction is a genre of story that exploded in the early 20th century. Now, as we look to Joshua chapter 2, I think this has all the marks of a great spy story. There's government espionage, there's narrow escapes, there's a chase scene, and a main character with a checkered past. I think this makes a great and entertaining narrative. You could imagine children in Israel sitting around and a great uncle telling them the story of Rahab and the spies. But though this is an entertaining story, it's riveting, it's not simply written down for our entertainment. Rather, it has great theological significance, teaches us much about God and His dealings with His people and with sinners, about God's grace. This message this morning I've entitled, God's Grace in Canaan. Now, as we get into this passage, first I want to kind of just sketch out the story We've read it already, but I want to kind of review this chapter and its story as a whole, and then I want to go into three major points, okay? So, as you begin looking at this narrative, you see in verses 1 to 7 is really the setup of the story. Verse 1, Joshua, the son of Nun, now the commander of Israel's army, this servant of the Lord who led the people into the promised land, he sends two spies into the land of Canaan, from a place called Shittim, which means the acacias. Obviously, there were acacia trees and shrubs in that area. But this was a place to the east of the Jordan, where Israel must have been camping. So he sends them out of the camp to spy out the land across the Jordan, much like Moses had sent 12 men to spy out the land back in Numbers chapter 13. Now, these men are to spy out, especially Jericho, which was this great walled city. It had an inner wall and an outer wall, and it was in the Jordan Valley. And so this would have been the first city that Israel had to conquer as they went on this conquest in the land of Canaan. It says that they came to the house of a woman named Rahab. She was a prostitute, and they lodged there. Needless to say, this was a broken woman in a broken city, in a broken world. But she gives the men a friendly welcome. She allows them to stay there in her house. Now we read that the king of Jericho got news of these spies in his land, verse 2. And obviously he's scared of the spies. He doesn't want Israel to come in and conquer his city, so he tries to catch them and dispose of them. He sends to Rahab to get them. But Rahab hides them in some stalks of flax on the roof and claims ignorance as to their identity and fabricates this story that they left before the gate closed at night. But she sends these men, she says, pursue them quickly, you'll overtake them. Really, she sends them on a wild goose chase because the men are not actually um, out of the city, they're just on a rooftop. So she buys the men some time But now the gate is shut, it's night, okay, it says in verse 7 there. 
So there's some tension at this point of the story. How are the men going to get out of the city now? And surely the king's men are going to come back and maybe they'll search Rahab's house again. Now the middle of the story is found in verse 8 to verse 21. And this is actually the most important part of the narrative. Here we have a conversation between Rahab and the spies. And they make a covenant with each other. They make this oath-bound agreement that they would keep her safe. Here, really, she begins and she makes a confession of faith, starting in verse 9. She says to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. She knows God's name, Yahweh. And she has assurance that this God of Israel, Yahweh, had given them the land. And she speaks of the fear that had fallen on all the people of Canaan, that they were melting away before the Israelites, that they were really shaking in their boots. There was no spirit left in them. Their spirits were fainting as they thought about this people coming into their land to conquer it. They had heard, it says in verse 10, of how the Israelites came through the Red Sea, how God parted the Red Sea in front of them, this mighty act of the arm of the Lord. And they had heard of how Israel defeated Sihon and Og. These were kings with cities east of the Jordan that Israel had already conquered. The people heard of these things and they feared. Now, she says in verse 11, And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab believed in this God, the one true God, the sovereign God. She believed that he was the supreme king of heaven and earth. And then, starting in verse 12, she asks that they would make an agreement with her. She knows the mighty God. She, she's afraid of this God. She trembles before this God in his wrath, but she also has some inclination that there may be grace in this God. And so she asks the spies that, that, that they would deal kindly with her, give her a sign. And really the language throughout this portion is the language of a covenant. They would make an oath to deal kindly and faithfully with her. The words there are hesed and emet, the steadfast love and faithfulness that characterizes a covenant relationship. And so these men say, yes, our life for yours, even to death, verse 14. They would deal kindly and faithfully with her. They would save all the people in her house. She lived there with her father and mother and brothers and sisters and extended family members. And she knew they were coming into the land to conquer it. And so she asked for, for them to keep her safe. Now then she lets them down by a rope through the window, verse 15, because her, her house was built into the city wall. And so the men manage to escape. She tells them to go into the hills for three days to hide themselves while the pursuers were on their way back. And they tell her to tie a scarlet cord out of her window so that when they came in and they conquered, they would see that sign in the window 
and they wouldn't go into her house. Only she had to make sure that no one left her house because then they would be innocent as to their blood. And they also tell her not to tell the secret of their business in, in Jericho. And so they make this oath. The men depart. She ties the scarlet cord in the window. Then we have really the conclusion of the narrative in verses 22 to 24. The king's men search all around. They can't find the men. They return to Jericho. The two spies go back to Joshua and tell him what happened. And the the conclusion of their mission is found in verse 24. They said to Joshua, Truly Yahweh has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This was a good report. And this mission and their encounter with Rahab had just bolstered their faith that God would give them the land because all the inhabitants of the land were afraid of the Israelites. Now that's the story. So now I want to just go into a few big points from this story that we we can glean and apply to ourselves. First of all is this, that God gives confidence that he will fulfill his promises. That's the sum of this chapter within the whole book of Joshua. What it really does is it gives the people assurance that they could go into the land. In the last chapter, chapter 1, over and over, there was this refrain that God was giving them the land. Indeed, God had given them the land. You look at chapter 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 11, verse 13, verse 15. God had promised this land and he was now giving it to the people. This was a promise he had made 600 years before this to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18. Now we know that the people could have gone into the land some 40 years prior Even then, the people were at the cusp of the promised land, and Moses sent 12 men in to spy out the land. But only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, really believed in the Lord, believed in God's power that they could go in and take over that country. Ten of them were afraid. They didn't believe the Lord. They exaggerated. And they died by a plague that God sent. And then God left the Israelites, that whole generation, wandering for 40 years. Now, the two men who did believe God, Joshua and Caleb, were the only survivors from that generation. Now Joshua sends two new spies in, like Joshua and Caleb, and they bring back an encouraging report. This whole narrative shows how God had prepared the people to go into the land Indeed, he had even prepared the hearts of the Canaanites to be conquered. We see in the king of Jericho's actions that he was afraid of the Israelite spies. He wanted to catch them. He wanted to do away with them and thwart their mission. By Rahab's speech, in verses 8 and following, we know that the whole land of Canaan had been made very afraid of the Israelites. They were scared of this people and their God. Because they had walked through the Red Sea and had stormed up by the Jordan and conquered kings and cities there. And the people of Canaan did not want to face this mighty people. Their spirits fainted. They lost heart. 
Now, God actually had said beforehand that he would prepare the hearts of the Canaanites, that he would really strike them with terror so that the people could go in and conquer them. In Exodus 15, you can turn there, we find the song of Moses. After the people went through the Red Sea, they sing this victory song of the victory God had over Egypt. And verses 14 to 16 says this, The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now were the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. So even back then they knew that news of this parting of the Red Sea would make the people of Canaan tremble. Then in Exodus chapter 23, verse 27, God had said to Israel, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Again, in Deuteronomy 2.25, God says, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Deuteronomy 11.25, No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. You see the might and power of God, the sovereignty of God that he controls the hearts of all those in Canaan. He is able to strike terror into his enemies by his mighty acts of judgment. He's able to make great kings and nations shake like leaves, and he's able to drive out great peoples before a small army. The greatness of the arm of God is on display in this chapter. This is the mighty God who is able to fulfill his promises. Like we spoke of last week, as God said to Joshua, he was to trust in the promised provision of God and his powerful presence that no one would be able to stand before him. When God promises something, we should immediately consider it a done deal. Right? He is the powerful and supreme king. He sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3 even says in Isaiah 46, 8-11, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God says he's going to bring the people of Israel into this land and conquer all these people. He will do it, and he prepares the people to conquer and prepares Canaan to be conquered. Now, 
from this chapter and its bigger context within the Pentateuch, we see that there are really only two responses to this sovereign God. You can put up a fight against him, or you can put your faith in him. You can put up a fight against his purposes, or like the Israelites, even fail to trust in those purposes. Or you can actively campaign against him, as the people of Canaan did, in large part. But that won't change the outcome. Like God was coming upon Canaan in judgment for the wickedness of that people, he too is coming in judgment upon this whole world. Think of that. And you can kick against that. You can live as if that is not true. You can try to fight against the Almighty, but that doesn't change the fact that He is coming, and He is coming soon to judge the earth. You can be like the large majority of the Canaanites and the king of Jericho and die under the wrath of God. You can be like the faithless generation of Israel and die in the wilderness under the wrath of God, never reaching the promised land. Fighting against the sovereign God is fighting a losing battle. It's like a military disaster at times when armies go up against an army and they truly misjudge what's going on and they're all defeated in a moment. But there's another reaction we can have to this almighty and sovereign God who is coming to judge the earth. That is... To have faith like Rahab and the spies and Joshua. To trust in this great and mighty powerful God. To believe that yes, this whole world is given to him. And he is the God of the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And to turn to him. To tremble before him. But not to stop at fear. But to run to him as a refuge to trust in him and his covenant grace. Friends, this is what we see secondly in the passage, that God's grace extends to trusting sinners. We see this in Rahab, the prostitute. Rahab, as we know here, was a Canaanite. And if you would read in the rest of the Bible about the culture of Canaan, you see that It was as depraved and wicked, really, as it gets. And this was part of the reason why God was coming to drive them out through the Israelites. Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 to 5 says, this is God speaking to Israel. He says, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Friends, the culture of Canaan was wicked. This was a people, really a a collection of people groups who had abandoned the Lord 
a long time ago. They had abandoned any sense of morality. I believe they had seared consciences. They were full of immorality, injustice, and idolatry. These were people groups who would sacrifice to ghastly false gods. They would sacrifice their very own children on altars. They would practice sorcery and necromancy, trying to speak to the dead. They were extremely immoral with regard to sexuality. They were so unclean, God could say that the land essentially was, the earth beneath them was sick of them, and it had to vomit them out. That's what Leviticus 18.25 says. When we really get a clear look at what was going on in Canaan, we can understand why God judged them. He was having mercy upon the land by ridding it of this people. But this was Rahab's culture, wasn't it? As I said, she was a broken woman in a broken city, in a broken world. She was a woman who made money by committing sin. And she was known for that. And she was employed in this way while living in her very own father's house. This is about as broken as it gets, isn't it? This is the bottom of the barrel. And we don't know all of her background or her situation. Probably there was really unfortunate circumstances that fell upon her. And she was driven by her own bad choices as well into this terrible line of work. This is, this is when the sinfulness of the world combines with our own sinfulness and it leads to a life just ruined by sin. But this is not unlike our world today, is it? Indeed, nothing has changed. And our culture today, I reckon, is about as bad as the Canaanites. We are full of immorality. We are full of idolatry and injustice. And there are many women, even in this nation, in this kind of situation today. And more than that, we should be able to all put ourselves in Rahab's shoes. Because we all are broken people in a broken city, in a broken world. If we look at Rahab as we read this story and think, boy, what a sinful woman. Wonder that the Israelites let her in and had mercy on her. Well, then we've missed the point. Because we are all Rahab, aren't we? There is good news in this chapter for Rahab and people like her. Yes, God judges sin, that's clear. God was coming to conquer Jericho. And he would destroy all the lawbreakers in Canaan. And yet, he extends grace to this one trusting sinner. And we see that she has great faith that God had planted within her. She feared the judgment of God coming upon Canaan. But she didn't stop there. She put her trust in Yahweh. She heard of Yahweh and whatever she knew of him, she believed in him. She cast herself upon him as a refuge. 
And as we see, we will see as we go on, her faith even led her to good works. Her trust in this sovereign God of heaven and earth led her to seek covenant mercy in him. She looks to make an agreement that these men from Israel would deal kindly with her. She makes a covenant with them. She trusts in them. She trusts in God as she hangs that scarlet thread in her window, trusting that God would pass over her in his judgment. It's not unlike that time when Israel was leaving uh, Egypt in the Exodus, when they put the blood of the lamb upon their door frames and God would pass over them as he judged Egypt. So also she ties this scarlet cord in the window and God's judgment would pass over her in covenant mercy. Well, friends, the mercy of God then extends even to the most broken of sinners. And so as, as you're here this morning, you have to ask yourself, well, are you a sinner? Are you a sinner here this morning? Then know that this God, this God of the word, this God of heaven and earth is a God of mercy and grace toward even the worst of sinners. We know that God sent his son into the world for this very purpose to save sinners, just as he saved Rahab out of Canaan. When Jesus walked on this earth, he walked with sinners. He ate and drank with them. He sought them out. And those who were self-righteous in Israel at that time, the holier-than-thou crowd, the Pharisees and the scribes, they looked at this and they said, how can you eat with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus would say that prostitutes and tax collectors came into the kingdom even before these men. These men heard John the Baptist and didn't believe in him. The tax collectors and sinners heard John the Baptist and believed in his word. So Jesus hung out with sinners. And these people came to him broken, looking for mercy and help. And they rejoiced to find that Jesus, the Lord, the son of David, was willing, more than willing, to pardon their sins. I want you to turn to one story in the book of Luke here. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. And this gives us an illustration of Jesus' mercy toward even a sinful woman like Rahab. It's likely that this woman here was the same kind of sinner as Rahab. Luke 7, verse 36, we see here a sinful woman coming and she approaches Jesus and she loves Jesus. She has to be with Jesus. She serves Jesus because she knows she finds forgiveness for her many and great sins in Jesus Christ. But we see a Pharisee who is really unable to love and serve Jesus because he doesn't believe he needs to be forgiven. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. 
And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Friends, you see that Jesus had mercy and grace and forgiveness stored up for a sinful woman. Pharisees were shocked that Jesus would allow her to come so close. But the sinful woman loved Jesus and she found salvation through faith in him. See, Jesus, like Joshua here, brings notoriously sinful people, into his kingdom. There is covenant mercy in our God. He makes agreements with sinners, really one great agreement, which we know as the new covenant, which was made by Jesus' blood as he came as the great Passover lamb to die in our place, to bear our penalty, to pay for our sins upon the cross as he bled and died. Then he rose again victorious and sits in heaven as our great high priest that we can always come to for mercy. See, God makes an agreement with sinners. God pours out mercy where our sins are many. His mercy is more. So do you see yourself as a sinner this morning? Put all other people out of your mind for a moment. Put the sins of our nation out of your mind and just think about yourself before God. Are you like Rahab? Do you see yourself as a sinner before this great and mighty sovereign God who is coming to judge the earth? Do you see yourself as deserving of the judgment of God? And yet do you look to God for mercy in him? Have you looked to Jesus Christ? 
Have you turned from sin and trusted in Jesus to wash away all your sins? Have you realized that nothing that you can do, no good works, no religious rituals can gain you peace with God, only, only looking to Jesus Christ? And if that's you this morning, well, you can find mercy just like Rahab. Rahab is known in the Bible for the sins she committed. Whenever she's mentioned, it's, it's right there, who she was before she found God's mercy. And this is to remind us that God does have mercy towards such people. Even if you are the most broken of sinners, you can come to him and find grace. But also, whenever Rahab is mentioned in the Bible, we see that along with her faith went good works. That when God saved her by his grace, he transformed her into a person who was producing good works. This is the third point I want you to see in this passage. That God's grace produces works. Rahab believed in the true God. And that led her to seek God's grace, but it also led her to practical works of service for God's kingdom. She took in the spies. She hid them. She gave them a friendly welcome. Hebrews 11.31 says, this was because of her faith. It says, by faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This great sinner became a part of the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. She did great works. She risked being punished by the king of Jericho. You know, if Rahab would have been found out that she was hiding these spies from Israel, I don't think the penalty would have been very pretty. This, is, this amounts to treason. Yet she saw that God was the king of kings and lord of lords, and so she pledged allegiance to the God of Israel before any earthly king. And she was willing to suffer with the people of God. She took Yahweh as her Lord and Savior. She trusted in him. And she helped the cause of Israel throughout this whole story. The book of James talks about Rahab as well. He says in chapter 2 verse 25 to 26. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now sometimes those verses trouble us. We have trouble understanding them. How James could say that we're justified by works, not by faith alone. Paul will say that kind of thing, right? We're justified by no, no one, no one of all flesh will be justified by works of the law. Only by grace through faith are we declared righteous before a holy God. And that is completely 100% true. But what James is saying here is that we are shown to be true believers by works. That is, our faith is justified. It is declared to be in the right when we show our faith by our works. In other words, our works prove that we have faith. 
He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. We are saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. But then Ephesians 2, 10 says, we are created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so Rahab showed that she had true faith by her works of service for Israel. Many Israelites died in the wilderness. They confessed the name of Yahweh. They said they believed in him. And they certainly knew that he was a sovereign God. They saw many mighty works on display before them as they left Egypt. They saw the mountain trembling at Mount Sinai. They saw many great and wonderful things that God did for them. And yet, when it came down to practical works of service, when it came down to obedience to God's command, they refused to go into the land. They showed they had no true faith at all. Some professing Christians today are like that. They may go to church on Sunday. They may profess faith in Jesus. But when it comes to practical obedience, there's really nothing to be found in their lives. They would never dare share the gospel with anyone. They would not labor to put their sins to death. They do not have any love for people in the church. They can't be found giving charitably to the poor. They couldn't be found helping the church's mission. And that's no true faith at all. If your faith does not lead you toward good works and obedience to the commands of God, then it is not true faith. We're not talking about perfection here. None of us are perfect. We can all see gaping holes in our obedience. But if Christ has so loved us, we will love him. If we love him, we will obey him. There will be obedience and good works seen in those who have true faith. We will never get to the place where we won't still be confessing sins to our dear Savior until we are rid of the sinful flesh in glory. The life of faith will be a fight, just as we see in Joshua. There's, there's a fight, and part of that is fighting against our own flesh, our own sins, and fighting to obey God, to progress in holiness, to love Christ and live for Him and for His mission here on earth. So friends, in conclusion, would you fear this God, the God of heaven and of earth, and turn to him and trust in his mercy through Jesus Christ? And if you know Christ, well, may you also keep taking refuge under his merciful wing, knowing he is coming soon to judge the earth, but also to save and vindicate the people of faith he has purchased. Let's pray together.